Okay, nice text, right? Um, like I say, if you don't have a Bible or your phone in front of you, I would encourage you to grab it because we're going to kind of focus in and there's some things you need to see about the way the text fits together. Seeing this chapter and a few verses clearly starts with grasping the structure of the text. And this is one of the things as I read through the Revelation, the intricacy of the text, the way it's put together, uh, you, you realize there's... First of all, John is communicating something profound, but the Spirit is using it in ways that, that are amazing, how things fit, uh, especially as you, you, you slow down and begin to sit with it. Today's text from 14.1 to 15.4 is another example of that Hebrew structure called a chiasm, where the beginning echoes the end, and the second part echoes the next to the last part, and the point is to drive your focus to the very middle of the text. Uh, and it focuses our attention on the one person who's actually worthy of attention. If you, if you look at the text that Les read, it starts and it ends with the song of the Lamb's followers. In 14.1, you see the people of God, okay? 14.1, I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We talked about that. Those are the people of God who follow the Lamb. If you go to 15, verse 2, what do you see again? And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. So at the beginning of the text and at the end of the text, you see the people of the Lamb of God. Now, what else about them? They're both, both times they're before the throne. In 14.3, it says before their throne. In 15.2, it says there's a sea of glass. Now, if you remember back to chapter 4, where was that sea? It was at the, at the throne, in the throne room. And they're doing something, something you all did this morning. John picked really good songs because he, he had you verbalizing what the, the saints are singing. There's a new song. In 14.3 it says, and they sang a new song before the throne. And in 15.3 they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So you see the links between the beginning of this passage and the end of this passage. They echo each other. Then we look at the second section, which is verses 6 to 13 and verses 15 to 20. And you see three angels and three angels. In the second section of the text, 6 to 13, you see angel number 1 in 14.6, this angel flying in the midair with the eternal gospel to proclaim. It says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Then you see angel number 2 in 14.8, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And then you see angel number three in verses 9 to 11. If anyone worships the beast in his image, receives the mark on forehead or hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, and so on. Like less read, down to the end of verse 11. And then if you move to the last, what I call the next to last section, verses 15 to 20, once again, you see three angels. You see that this first 6 to 13 and 15 to 20 are echoing the same images. Angel number four says, take your sickle and reap. In 1415, angel number five in 1417 is this strong, silent type. He doesn't say anything, but he's got a sickle. And angel number six shows up in 1418 and calls to angel number five and says, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine. So what, what I want you to see is it begins with the people of the lamb around the throne. And then you see three angels. And then you see this central figure, one like the son of man. Then you see three angels again. Then you see the people of God around the throne. That's why it's drawing attention to this one in the middle, this one like a son of man. It's a packed phrase. It's iconic. 
carries a lot of meaning for the Jews. It's the term that Jesus used to describe himself more than any other term. He used it 80 times in the Gospels, calling himself the Son of Man. It's interesting, nobody else ever called him the Son of Man in the Gospels, in their interactions with him. Nobody else ever did because it was such an iconic phrase. It goes back from Daniel chapter 7. There's this vision Daniel has, and you should read this because it sounds like Revelation. Daniel 7, 1 to 14, there's four beasts that come up out of this chaotic sea. What does that sound like? What we've been talking about. And one looks like a lion, one looks like a bear, one looks like a leopard, and the fourth one has iron teeth. And there are these four kingdoms that are coming to stand in the world. And in, in, in 9 and 10 of Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, it says, And I looked, and thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, his wheels were all ablaze. And a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court was seated, and the books were opened. See, what's happened in Daniel is you see these four kingdoms coming up, and then God takes his throne. And it's a really revelation-like picture. And then it says in verse 13 and 14 of Daniel 7, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, what Daniel is picturing in his dream, these four kingdoms overthrown by the one like the Son of Man who comes to have an eternal kingdom. And that's the image 14, 1 to 15, 4 drive you to. People singing around the throne, three angels. And then here shows up this one like the Son of Man. It's Jesus. That's what the revelation is saying. Then here's the revelation of Jesus. Then you have three angels, and you back out again with the, the, the people of the Lamb singing. And the message that, that it has, this whole section, is, is there's a choice between kingdoms. There's a choice between kingdoms. We've, throughout Revelation, I've said over and over, the church has been called, oh, I forgot you guys over there. I'm not used to looking away from that camera. Hi, guys. We've, the, the message is this choice. We've been called as the church to be witnesses, even to the point of death. doesn't matter what happens. God has us protected. And our message is to call people to this kingdom of the Lamb right? It's, it's, they're, they're stuck in the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the beast, the kingdom of the dragon, whatever you want to call it. And our message is to offer our lives calling people to the kingdom of the lamb. And these first three angels are three angels who clarify that message. They all point, it says that the first one has the eternal gospel to proclaim. Now, the problem is this doesn't sound like any gospel that we've shared. You don't, you don't share the gospel normally the way it is here in Revelation 14. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of living water. See, that's not normally where we start with the gospel, but it's where this one starts because what he's saying there, he's saying you fully have to realize who God is. The the foundational concept, the foundational idea under the good news of the gospel is that there is a God who rules over all, over all creation. It's, It's one of these ideas that that are vitally important you know we have in our own life we have these inconsequential decisions things that you know what what kind of shirt did I wear today and we have very consequential decisions things that that 
impact our whole life. And this first angel is saying, the foundational decision of which throne you will bow to is the bottom line. Fear God and keep his commandments. All of creation is, is his. He, he, he rules over all. He's the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, I remember when we built our house up the street from where we live now, Darwin Gartner was our contractor, and I remember day after day after day watching him go out there and measure the foundation from one corner to this corner and from that corner. It drove me nuts because I was like, come on, let's get something done. He's measuring and he's measuring. He's got stakes here and he moves. And it, it took like a week to get the measurements right for everything to be in place. And then after the foundation was poured and, and set, you know, we had, we had it framed up within the same amount of time it took him to measure it. But the point was the foundational decisions were the important ones. And this first angel says, the bottom line is you need to fear God and keep his commands. You need to realize who's actually ruling everything that we see. And it's not a choice of understanding. The first angel doesn't say, now let me explain to you why you should fear God. It's, it's a choice of surrender. And if we wait till we understand everything, if we wait till we understand Revelation, we will never open the book. If we wait till we understand, we're not going to get there. The, the call of the gospel is a call to surrender. And it's urgent. This is emphasizing the message of the second angel in verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. How is that good news? How is that the gospel? Well, it, it's very good news. <laughs> Because what it's saying is the kingdom that you're, you're leaving behind has fallen. Babylon was, was the great empire that took Israel into captivity. Remember 586 B.C. when they came, destroyed Jerusalem, took all the, the Jews off to Babylon. And that's, that's long gone. That's history. But in the New Testament, Babylon had come to stand as a symbol against any, for any empire that stood against God. And throughout history, it's come back over and over. It goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis where they raised this tower to, to do their own thing. And, and what, what they're saying here is it's urgent. There's, you have to understand the futility of any other choice other than fearing God, other than his kingdom. He's at the center of it all. And it, it's so urgent and so sure that he is at the center that the third angel speaks, or that this angel states it in the past tense. He doesn't say Babylon will fall, does he? Babylon has fallen. It's already gone, people. Don't hang on to the old way. Come out and follow the way of the Lamb. I want you to realize systems of evil that don't surrender to God and to the Lamb, to Jesus, they, they are made to self-destruct. They implode. What, what you have seen this week is the beginning. Uh, I don't want to wade into this a lot yet, but we, you're going to hear a lot about this whole idea of, of racial equity and our own... Um, what's going on in our guts that um, we, we've boiled racism down to bad acts and we don't realize how deeply these kind of things are embedded in our society and in our structure. And even if we're not doing bad things, some of our presuppositions and our understandings just because of where we were raised from, we don't understand. But what you look at the rioting and the suffering in the states, and I, I mean, I'm not in support of violence happening there, but, but you got to call it what it is. It's, a, it's an expression of pain. It's an expression of pain that people are feeling. Because you know what? There's a system in place. We don't even know it's there. It's underneath our very actions, and it's imploding. It's, it's destroying itself. 
And that, that's, that's part of the kingdom of the world, this, this treating people created in the image of God differently, even if we don't realize how we're doing it, even if we don't have, com- we don't have compassion because we don't understand the perspective people are coming from. See, evil will always fall. Babylon has fallen. It will always implode upon itself. And that's why the angels are calling us out of that kingdom, because it will destroy us if we stay with it. Anything not centered around God and Jesus as his sacrificial lamb is destined for collapse. It's good news because, you know what, as people see the system collapse, fallen as Babylon the Great, it, it helps them to realize they want something different. I think that's what's going on in the, all over North America now. We're realizing, wait, there's really something wrong here. We don't want to keep living the way we're living. It's a beautiful time for the church to stand up and be the church to love and to speak out for the people that need help because what we're doing then is calling them to a kingdom of the Lamb. You see, until systems collapse, people think they can hold on to it. But when you begin to open your own heart to your system or the way you're thinking collapsing, fallen as Babylon the Great, it, it, it opens a door for you to come into the kingdom of the Lamb. And the third angel reminds us that choices have implications. This brings into clear focus those two opposing forces, the power of God who created all that is and the Babylon-like forces that stand against him and it calls people to make a choice. These choices have implications. People that refuse to surrender to the lamb will suffer the consequences of that choice. I love the quote by C.S. Lewis, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And if, if, we, if people refuse to surrender to Jesus, there's suffering that comes from that. We have to be honest about that. There's judgment. But the reality is, at this point, what we see is the patience of God. He's, even the church is suffering because he's waiting for people to come to him. That's what we see in verses 12 and 13. So let me look at that. It's hard for me to turn. Look at this one-handed. You guys should be really impressed. I'm not known for being the most coordinated. Verse 12 and 13, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. See, the beauty of this gospel that you've got to understand and the the, the patience of God here says that we hold on when it looks like the world's falling apart because what God is doing is being graciously patient to wait for others to come into his kingdom. And then you come to that center of the text, the one who reaps. This phrase from Daniel 7, he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All people's nations and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away And his kingdom is like one that will never be destroyed. See, in Daniel, this one like the Son of Man sets up a kingdom that will never end. He comes on a cloud. And that's exactly the image you see here in Revelation 14. This one like a Son of Man coming on a cloud, and he's got a sickle in his hand. He's ready to do something, ready for action. It means reaping, right? That sickle is the sign of reaping a harvest, That's what you use a sickle for. And as we move on to the last three angels, we see a reaping that may surprise us. The last three angels come, and the reaping happens. Now, this is where the text gets a little tricky, and maybe you think I'm just making this up, but you can follow and wrestle it with it. I've wrestled through this text a lot, and if you want to disagree, I'd love that. Let's just talk about it and try to figure it out. 
But the reaping symbolized by the son, one like a son of man holding a sickle. It's a reaping that's called for by these last three angels. Angel number four calls to the son of man, take your sickle and reap and harvest. And he does, right? In verse 16, he harvests the earth. Then we see the next angel come, angel number five, and he has a sickle. And angel, he doesn't say anything. Angel six says to angel five, you should do another reaping of the, quote, clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. Now, how many of you have ever reaped Reaped? Repped? Reaped? Is that the right word? Reaped? How many of you have ever collected grapes with a sickle? It's, it's, it's an unusual term, isn't it? It seems weird that you would do that. Typically, you pick grapes. You don't sickle them like you do wheat. So there's something going on there. This is not just an agricultural metaphor. And then these grapes are thrown into the great winepress of God's wrath. And then comes, this is the one you've been waiting for, Right? One of the most gruesome images in all of Revelation, verse 20. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. What an image, right? This is the one in Revelation that everybody likes to avoid. Blood, the height of a person's head, for 1,600 stadia, that's 180 miles, 290 kilometers. That's leaving our parking lot and driving to SeaTac Airport on the south of Seattle. That's the distance mentioned there. But here's the question, and this is where I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Is this image a horrific image or a beautiful one? Now, I know right now you think it's a horrific image, but just, just stay with me. Don't write me off. Uh, Remember our rule, we're going to set down what we've thought about Revelation or what we may perceive about it and and open ourselves up just for a minute to maybe think of something else. And there's several ways to look at this. I'm going to give you two options that most people fall into one camp or the other. I fall into the second one, and you can fall wherever you want. That's the last time I'll ever say you can fall wherever you want. But uh, the first option one is this. That image is the wrath of God punishing the evil of all those who refuse the kingdom of God and who worship the beast. That their blood is shed as they are crushed by the wrath of God. That's the typical way people have understood that passage. I I like justice. I want evil done. I mean, we all do, I think. But the reality is even that, that passage, that level of violence and gore and blood and crushing even makes us feel uncomfortable when we want justice, when we want evil to be punished. I don't think that's what the text is saying. And here's where I'm going. This is option two. Option two is it's the blood of salvation that covers all who are in need of forgiveness. Now, Jeff, where did you get that? You're dreaming it up, Jeff. You're reading the text. You're reading. Just listen. Number one, here's some of my, what, how I'm supporting that. Reaping in the Bible, is never, ever equated with judgment of evil. It's always God reaping those who are his. It's always the fruit of the kingdom. Jesus said back in John four thirty five, I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. We see the same type of imagery in Matthew 13, 24. There's that story where the... the, the the farmer plants his field, and then the evil one comes in the night and, and sows the weeds in among the wheat, right? And, and the, the servants say, should we go pull up the weeds? And the master says, no, wait, wait, wait. Wait till harvest. 
and let them grow together until that time. And then that time will come. There will be a day when they reap what they reap, what they take in is the people of the kingdom. What they burn is the wicked. And see, I want you to see, it's clear from this, I think, that the, especially the first image where the son, one like a son of man reaps, and it sounds like grain. That, that makes more sense to me than on that first reaping that's mentioned, that it's related to salvation. There are those that God will take to be with him. But then we come to that second kind of reaping, which is a grape harvest. And like I say, with a sickle, why would you harvest grapes? That sounds a bit weird. It, it, I think it's a clue that this is not exactly what you think it is. And once again, remember, the Bible never uses the idea of reaping to speak of judgment, only of salvation. So how is that reaping of grapes, how is that salvation, Jeff? That doesn't sound the, the being crushed in the wine press of God. How does that seem like salvation? Well, that John uses the phrase in verse 18, the earth's vine. See that in verse 18? Let me just read it. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grape from the earth's vine. Every other time that that, bio, that that phrase is used, six times in the Old Testament, the earth's vine always describes Israel. It's always a metaphor for the people of God. That's why it was so radical in John 15 when Jesus says, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine. And so if, if you were a Christian at this point with any kind of Jewish history and understanding of the Old Testament, they would have thought of Israel or Jesus, the true Israelite, to be the vine and his followers to be the fruit. So wait a second, Jeff, but, but why then are the grapes crushed? Why, why are the grapes crushed in the winepress of God because of his wrath? Well, there's an important phrase in verse 20. Where is the winepress? Outside the city. Now, in our North American thinking, we think exclusion. That's definitely the, those judged, right? But if you think about this from a Jewish Old Testament, New Testament mindset, John's listeners would have had two other ideas. There's a story in Matthew 21, parable of the workers in the vineyard, right? Farmer plants a vineyard, he goes away and puts workers in charge, and then, then he tells the, the workers he's coming back. He sends servant after servant. They kill servant after servant, and eventually they kill his son outside the, the wall of the vineyard. That's one of the images that would have been in their mind. And then Hebrews 13, 12 and 13 says, Jesus also to sanctify his people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. See, one of these outside the gate, outside the wall images is the image of Golgotha, the cross, where the Lamb of God was taken outside the city and crucified. It's a place where Jesus took the punishment and wrath, the place where believers suffer for the sacrificing lamb, may be sacrificed. Now, what, what, I'm, what I see here <laughs> is these grapes are the fruit of the gospel. And yes, sometimes they are being crushed, but they're pointing back to the one who was crushed on our behalf. And it makes sense to me because the only other time, the only other time that the fruit of the vine of grapes is called blood is in a room just the night before the crucifixion, the Last Supper, when Jesus says, this cup is a new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. And see, I, I think the image here is this. I think the image is that in the middle of this crushing time, when believers are dying, what God's actually doing is, is the wrath of God is coming on the world, and it, it's causing the death of believers. 
It's, that's why it says, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Because the body of Christ is still being sacrificed to show the love of God for the world. And verse 20 means that there is enough forgiveness for everyone. This is where I, I think it's a beautiful image. 1,600 stadia. I mean, you, you, we can get into numbers all day long. You remember what four is? Four is the number of creation, like the four corners of the earth, the four beasts that represent creation. Well, I, I love it because you have four times four, which means all of creation, times 10 times 10. 10 is a number of completeness. When Lilia was born, how many toes and fingers did she have? She had 10, right? You see those 10, that means, okay, it's good. It's all there. And this four times four emphasizes creation, and 10 times 10 emphasizes all of creation completely. And four times four times 10 times 10 is 1,600. You also get 40 times 40. 40 is 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days of the flood, this purging of sin. This number 1,600 plays with this idea of complete forgiveness for sin. It's also interesting that when people would say the border of Israel from Tyre down to Egypt along the Mediterranean Sea, they would always use the term 1,600 stadia to describe the length of that border. So the image here is that there is enough blood to cover that entire border. There's enough, and, and if it's what I think it is, the forgiveness of God, it's enough, there's enough forgiveness for all. And it goes to the height of a horse's bridle, which means it covers your head. You're, you're completely covered. You see, the reason I, I, I think it's beautiful and not horrific is it's a reminder of one of these main themes of Revelation that reality is not as it seems. You've got the suffering church wondering how the kingdom of Jesus that, that, that they've been taught about makes sense in the world where they're dying. And, and chapters 12 to 14, I think, convey this image to the church that things are not what they look like. Even when you see blood being shed because the wrath of God is coming on the judgment of the world, even that blood is blood that offers forgiveness to the world. It's, it's a reminder of the cross outside the gate where the Lamb of God received the wrath of God to shed his blood for you and me. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen for what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. And these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, the central story of this whole revelation, you're like, what are we going to do after this? Well, we're going to back our way back out to some really good stuff. Next week's not the greatest, but anyway, we'll... Uh, you guys don't have to come back next week. You can take a week off and turn your TV off for next week, right? But, but chapter 12 is this. Chapter 12 says there's a cosmic drama going on where God is victorious. There's this lamb, or there's this child there that's born to the woman. The dragon wants to kill him, but the dragon cannot kill the child. The dragon's frustrated because he can't kill the child. And it says he, he goes up and there's this war in heaven and the dragon is thrown out. And, and Paul writes in Colossians 2, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Chapter 12 says this is the drama going on. You cannot lose. The cosmic battle has already been won by the child. And that means even though victory is won, we're now, chapter 13, living during the dragon's last stand. That's what's going on. The cycle of war against the followers of the Lamb, this unholy trinity of Satan, this political power, and even religious power. To me, that's just so true. You see how religious power misused has hurt people all over the world. How Satan uses that to drive people away from the Lamb. 
to wage war against the followers of the Lamb. And it's no surprise to Jesus. What did he say to his disciples the night before he left? I've told, John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. See, that's the story. The drama's won. It's going to be tough for a while. Patient endurance on part of the saints. Chapter 13 reminds us that this world will have trouble, but that it's temporary. And remember 12, 12, where they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death because even the shedding of their blood points back to the cross where, where Christ shed his blood for the world. See, the reason we don't have to fear has always been based on the body of Christ offered for the world. That's why we come to the table today. Luke 22, 19, and he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Can you get the vision that even the church dying in persecution, even the body of Christ that way, is pointing back to the crucifixion where God would let himself die so that people would leave the kingdom of the world and come into the kingdom of light. That's the image. We, we, think, we think the church is successful when we don't have any problems. We think the church is successful when we're victorious visibly, when, when, when we're growing, when we're thriving. And what this says is sometimes when the church dies, when people die, when people suffer and are persecuted, when they struggle and it doesn't work, somehow the lamb is still being pointed to by their sacrifice. The blood shed outside the city for us made a way for us to be forgiven, reconnected with God. And even when the body of Christ, as you and I, suffer and die, we are kept safe. We remember that there's blood enough for all of us. There's blood enough for the whole world to be forgiven if people will just come. And that's our message then, now, and until he comes, that there's enough there's enough forgiveness. You remember the, the, the seven churches in the middle one, all of them were called to overcome, but in the middle one, do you remember that? The middle one said something different, to him who overcomes and keeps my deeds until the end. And I said, the reason it's different is because it wants to define what overcoming is. Overcoming means to live like Jesus. And you know what Jesus did? He laid down his life for the world. And that was the message then to the church of Revelation, that even in sacrificial death that God is winning. That's the message for us now. Even as we're humbled by exposing our own hearts and dealing with racial issues and, and starting to be honest about the way our society functions, even as we, we hurt, that it, it's God's way of leading us into something different. And we do it until he comes. You see, even pointing to the cross and his death is something we do to remember that he won, that he's coming again. Hebrews tells us to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And the way we do that today, the way we remember what he's done for us and what's coming is we come to a table where the blood was shed for us. Let's pray. God, we want to, um, well, these images are, are disturbing. And I, I just pray, God, you would give us wisdom. But I, I'm thankful that what I, what I see there is, is blood being shed not to destroy, but to give life. And yes, it's honest. The kingdom uh, causes conflict, and people that refuse to surrender to your kingdom suffer. And we cut off from you, separated from you. But God, we're thankful that the cross says that the doorway is open for now, that, that as we surrender, we can be kept safe, 
and that others can be called in. Help us to, to, to proclaim this gospel, this fear God, keep his commands, that you're the God who's ruling. Help us to surrender our lives to you and may, may the way we live point other people towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. The problem with uh, a text like that, well, let me tell you one thing. I'll just be honest. Um, that's the hardest text I think you'd ever have to preach. So I, that's done for me. I'm, oh, it's over. The thing I love about it, though, and, and what I w- don't want you to miss, is we're drawn to blood flowing 1,600 stadia as high as a horse's bridle. But the text points us back to the one in the middle. The text says there's one coming on the cloud like the Son of Man, and he's worthy. He's, he's the God of all creation. And, and if you can start to see that blood rushing 1,600 stadia this deep, as this overwhelming love of God, a God who would come. That one who comes on the cloud in judgment is also the one who came to, to pour, let the wrath of God be poured out on himself for you and for me. And so that overwhelming blood, it, it chases us down. It will not let us go. And that, that, that God who loved us that way loves the world that way. And he wants the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom of the slain lamb to be out there. That's what we go out into. My prayer for you this week is that you can live experiencing that overwhelming, reckless love of God and that it can flow through you to every person that's six feet away from you for the whole week. Amen.